Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. There comes a time when there is no more action to take, no more prayers to offer. No more hills to be captured. No more points to be made. No more positions to be defended. And no more control to be had. There is only the letting go. Hello my friends, this is Ronnie McBrayer and it is September 22nd, 2021. The first day of autumn, first day of fall. And it's feeling just a little cooler outside. This is part four of my current series, Try Something Different, Surrender. And I am so happy to share these thoughts with you today and hope uh, hope they help you and that they land in a good place for you. Hope you're having a great day. Thanks for listening. And uh, to so many of you, thanks for recommending this podcast to others. And if you're a new listener, uh, thanks for joining us. Without any further interruption, this is part four, Try Something Different, Surrender. On April 8, 2009, the cargo ship Maersk, Alabama, was boarded and ultimately hijacked by four machine gun welding Somali teenagers in the Indian Ocean. It was the first successful pirating of a ship flying under the American flag in almost 200 years. The master of that ship was Captain Richard Phillips, a steady, steely New Englander who had originally begun a career studying international law. He became a case study in that discipline instead, while also becoming something of a true folk hero. His calm demeanor resulted in the rescue of his entire crew, the ultimate salvaging of his ship, and the saving of his own life when the Somali pirates took him hostage in a lifeboat. He tells his story in the 2010 book, A Captain's Duty. And you may not have read that book, but you may have seen the film, the adaptation. It is called Captain Phillips, and it stars Tom Hanks in the lead role. Hollywood takes some liberties in the telling of this story, of course, but overall it seems true to Captain Phillips's experience and his account. Only one of the four pirates survived the hijacking, the other three meeting their demise. The survivor was Abdullawali Muse, who today is serving a 34-year federal prison sentence in an Indiana penitentiary. On screen, Muse was played by this young man, Barkhad Abdi. And Abdi's story is as amazing in some ways, maybe more so, than the story of Captain Phillips. Abdi came to the United States from Somalia when he was 14 years old. His family settled in Minneapolis. He learned English. He graduated from high school. He became a cab driver and a DJ. He was not an actor, 
But he answered a casting call when the director of Captain Phillips began looking for young Somali men to play in this movie. So he drove his cab to the audition. And there was something about his hunger, something about those piercing eyes, and the fact that had he not left his country, he could have very well have been one of the young men attempting to hijack the Mursk. It rang all the bells. Abdi got six weeks of training and a check for $65,000. Hanks made $15 million for that movie. But Bakhard Abdi also won in the aftermath the Oscar and the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. And his life has been changed remarkably from that point forward. The pivotal scene in the movie is when Abdi, playing Muse, overtakes the wheelhouse and bridge of the ship. He is menacing about with his Kalashnikov rifle, those piercing eyes. He seizes control with a line that was never in the script. If we could put that picture back up. Let's see him glowering at us. There you go. This is a line that at the moment was completely ad-libbed. Look at me. Look at me. I am the captain now. What made that line even more profound is that Abdi and Hanks had never even met each other until that moment in the wheelhouse. The director wanted the scene to be charged, to be unpredictable, to be filled with tension. And that's exactly what they got. Abdi, as muse, did more than take the ship. He stole the scene. He put the entire film on his back and walked away with it. All with that one line. Look at me. I am the captain now. You won't win an Oscar with that line. You won't. I won't. But it doesn't mean you haven't used it. And even if you haven't vocalized it, you have lived it. We all have. Who's in charge around here? Have you ever said that in a chaotic situation? Who's in charge around here? Well, we ask ourselves that question about our own lives, and we have a ready answer. Look at me. I am the captain now. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. There's a poem I was made to memorize somewhere along the way. It was and is by William Ernest Henley. It's entitled Invictus. And dear William was one of those Victorian era Brits who could have been the poster boy for keep calm and carry on. He lost a leg as a child due to illness. And when as an adult he was told that his disease would lead to the amputation of his second leg, he refused and sought out a doctor who could save that leg. And he wrote this poem laying in a hospital bed after one of his surgeries to save his leg. I'd like to read it for you here. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, 
looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What a load of BS. And worse, it's fully anti-Christ in its ethic and in its practice. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane and observe. Listen to Jesus on the night he is betrayed, the eve of his passion. Black is this night. Bloody is his brow. Charged with bludgeons and punishments is this prayer meeting. But unlike Henley, Jesus winces and weeps. Jesus sees the horror of the shade and finds it terrifying. He knows he will be conquered. He knows he will be killed. He is intentionally no longer the master of his fate. He is no longer the captain of his soul. Jesus in the blood and the guts boxes and wrestles with God until he can finally let go and surrender to a will that is not his own. The two pictures that you see on the screen are the Garden of Gethsemane today. The garden sits on a busy corner in modern Jerusalem, just outside the old city. The garden is still there, to be sure, an olive grove dating back to the before the first century. It was not lost on me the the first time that I visited the church there, that the giant old ancient olive trees that are encased in iron gates, that they are so old that Jesus very well could have knelt and prayed beside one of them. But as holy as that place is, it's more like a carnival scene today. It's as if Mickey Mouse and Disney took over a holy site. There are vendors, there are queued lines, There's pushing and there's shoving. And the cars, as you can see in that lower picture, pass perilously close to the sidewalk. But across the street to the north, the Garden of Gethsemane extends into a walled little paradise that would have been much more like it was in Jesus' day. Some of you who have been to Israel with me have stood in that garden. And in that garden, the top picture... It is easy to imagine what it would have been like for Jesus that night. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, ronniemcbrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you 
for being a regular listener. Jesus would have been praying with a view toward Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives directly over his left shoulder, rising in the shadows, sprinkled with the lamps and the firelights of the night. Immediately behind him, just a few miles over that ridge, was Bethany, home to his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and indeed his home away from homes. And then to the north, to his right, about a hundred miles, his home, Nazareth. And facing due east, no more than a few hundred yards in the distance, Jerusalem stood like a fortress, throwing its shadow down on the Garden of Gethsemane. In Jesus' day, the temple, a wonder of the ancient world built by King Herod, would have loomed even higher than the city gates, higher than that church that you see there, 70, 60 feet above the city walls. And this temple, with its smoke always rising constantly to heaven with the sacrifices to God, represented the very presence of God in the world. It was as if, in the Jewish mind, that God lived in that building. And now here Jesus is, in the shadow of that building, clawing in agony at the ground as heaven looks down on him from the city of God. In a matter of moments, from the text you heard today, the authorities will arrive in this garden to arrest him. They will take him away and just as quickly put him on trial. The morning's light will find him limping along the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow to his execution. And commentators will often say that the Lord is in agony because as the Son of God, he could see the future. But of course he could see the future. And he didn't have to be a prophet or the son of God to know what was about to happen. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, one of our own prophets tells us. It's obvious what is going to happen now. The true agony of the soul is Jesus' struggle to give up on his own will and let God and God's will come to pass. The true agony is staying put in that garden and not running back to Nazareth. The true agony is refusing to marshal an army or lead a fight. The true agony was standing down. The true agony was surrender to what was about to happen. Consider that Jesus was raised in a wayside, hard scrabble town that had a history of insurrection. When he reached the age that he should have taken over the family business, he got some harebrained idea to go hang out in the desert with a camel clothes wearing, locust eating, holy man named John the Baptist. When he came back home, his first sermon was so blasphemous that the people who knew him best tried to kill him. He was a wonder-working, powerful man that gathered a massive crowd And over the course of that ministry of his, that crowd abandoned him. And he was left with a few ragtag men and some fawning women. And here he is at the end of it all. And all this talk about loving your enemy and forgiveness and justice for the poor and judgment on oppression. Nothing in Galilee has changed one iota. Nothing has changed. So what is Jesus to do? 
He intentionally arrives in Jerusalem at the most difficult time of the year. He did so to rebuke the corruption of the temple. He did so to rebuke the Romans who occupied the land. And he called judgment down essentially on the entire society in which he lived. And there was no question now what was going to happen to Jesus. Every Jew for 10,000 square miles knew what was going to happen to him. You didn't show up in the capital city and cause trouble with the New Year celebration and not get strung up on a tree. And Jesus knows this is coming. And he finds it horrifying. His final prayers reveal as much. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all record the struggle and the prayers prayed. Luke's rendition, who we heard today, is probably the most agonizing. Jesus is alone. He's exhausted. He has been tragically misunderstood by his disciples who still expect him to pull some powerful messianic rabbit out of his hat. They still expect him to cast off his wayfares and pull his shirt back and reveal that he is indeed Superman. But he won't do those things. Not my will, but your will be done. Did you know that's the hardest prayer you may ever pray in your life? Not my will, but your will be done. And he is sweating bloody bullets and begging God. He says to God, I really would like to do this different. You think you could work something out? Oh, I know it comes across real glossy. And it sounds so stoic and heroic. But he is begging God, let's, can we... Can we find a different deal? Can we do it without as much pain? Could we accomplish maybe this my way? Which would short circuit and detour away from this bloody cross. Julian of Norwich, who was an English mystic from the Middle Ages, was fond of saying this. First there is the fall, then we recover from the fall. Both are the mercy of God. This is what you're seeing play out in the garden. The weight of the world collapsing down on Jesus and he falls down into that dirt. The greatest physical, mental, spiritual, emotional struggle of his life. But somewhere in the falling, he finds his feet. And he rises with what can only be called holy resignation. And he sets his face like flint to do the work that he's called to do. Had the strangest teacher show me this lesson from the life of Jesus. And he did so from a great distance. And only after I allowed his non-traditional view and non-traditional God to speak to me. That teacher, long dead before I was born, was Nikos Kazantzakis. Here's a picture of him. About the time that he wrote a book you may have heard of called Zorba the Greek. Nikos also wrote another controversial book called The Last Temptation of Christ. Now, when I was a teenager, Martin Scorsese adapted that book to the screen. And never have I heard such howling in the churches in which I grew up. 
about how awful that movie was and how wrong it was. And back in his day when he was still living, it got poor Nikos excommunicated from his beloved Greek Orthodox Church. They kicked him out because of that book, even though he told them all it was fiction. Still, they couldn't tolerate that. But if you set that aside, bless his heart, and you listen to some of the things he had to say about what was going on in the garden, he is all over it. He says, and this is heavy, but listen to what he says here. In order to pass from darkness into light, Jesus must refuse to act. He must stand down. He must give up the captain's chair after all the displays of power, his teaching, miracle making, traveling the countryside, beating the revolutionary drums. Finally, there is surrender. And then quoting Nikos again, Jesus brings into the service of the good failure in order to achieve victory. This is Jesus after being repeatedly wounded on the battleground of human experience. What a line. Arriving at serenity and acceptance. This is the way of Jesus. So let's forget about Somali pirates and British poets and American swagger. Let's forget about our own stubbornness. There comes a time when there is no more action to take. No more prayers to offer. No more hills to be captured. No more points to be made. No more positions to be defended. And no more control to be had. There is only the letting go. When we reach that place where we are truly empty-handed, empty-hearted, and hopefully empty-headed. When we have given up, given out, and given over. Turning our will and lives over to the care of the God of our understanding, Bill Wilson would say in AA. It is then we discover that surrender is not the end. Surrender is the beginning of doing the will of God. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less, for producing and licensing my theme music. Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork. And Land Sunshine on My Shoulder Crow is credited with any and all photography. And as always... Toby and Mo, the two small wonder dogs that run my home, assisted with all editing. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. This has been Keeping the Faith, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>